it's not fair, we cry. The toddler who's only given one ice cream. The child whose ball is taken off them. The teenager who has to be home by 10.30pm. The student who has to pay another term's catering charge. The parent whose child wakes up in the night again. Uh, The single person who longs to be married but isn't. The employee who has to work overtime. The driver stuck in a traffic jam. The middle-aged person whose marriage is hard work. The elderly person who suffers yet another bout of ill health. It's not fair, we cry. From a young age, we have a strong sense of the importance of justice. Justice really matters. We saw this last year with the Plebgate scandal. MP Andrew Mitchell was accused of insulting a policeman when he was forced to get off his bike in Downing Street. Turned out later the accusations were false and he was cleared. And it matters that the justice justice is done, that the guilty are condemned and the innocent cleared. We see it in the long-standing desire to catch the abductors of Madeleine McCann. We see it in Syria, where mass killing continues with no accountability, with no punishment. I'm sure we can all think of examples in our own lives where we feel we've been unfairly treated, perhaps falsely accused, and it hurts. It's a horrible feeling. If we're innocent, we want people to know because we sense strongly that justice really matters. This passage we're looking at this morning is all about justice. It is about a miscarriage of justice. It is about right and wrong, guilt and innocence, condemnation and acquittal. We see today Jesus' trial. We see Jesus before the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council. Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor. Jesus before Herod, the king of the Jews. And Jesus before the Jewish crowd. Jesus is the accused. The Jews and the Gentiles are the accusers, the judges. And yet, there is a deep, deep irony in this passage. Because what we begin to see is that Jesus is not the only one on trial. Now actually, the whole world is on trial. Humanity is on trial. We are on trial. Because although Jesus is the accused here, what we see is that actually, Jesus is the judge. He's God's judge. He's God's heavenly judge. He's the judge before whom we will all one day stand. And so the question this morning is how will we fare? The question that we are to think about this morning, the reason this passage is so important for us today, that I long that you listen carefully, is this, are we innocent or are we guilty? As people, are we those who are innocent or are we those who are guilty? Who do we most easily relate to in the story? The innocent or the guilty? Perhaps that's a question that you've never particularly thought about. If you're not a Christian, it never occurred to you. What I urge you to think is not so much what we think of ourselves, but ultimately what does God say about us? What does Jesus the judge say about us? Justice really matters. It matters to us. It matters to God. So as we look at this passage, I want to draw your attention to three truths. We learn something about Jesus. We see the innocence of Jesus. We learn something about ourselves. We see the sinfulness of humanity. And we learn something about God. We see the mercy 
of God. So my prayer this morning is that we would see Jesus for who he is, ourselves for who we are, and we would see God for all that he's done for us. So let's have a look. Jesus is taken to the Sanhedrin. It's the council of the elders there in verse 66. That's the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They're there in Jerusalem. It's Passover time. We've already seen that Jesus was arrested on Thursday night. Now it's early Friday morning, and the religious leaders are in a hurry. Roman courts only heard cases in the morning. Saturday's the Sabbath, so they can't conduct a trial then. The iron is hot. It is now or never. They're eager for a quick condemnation and crucifixion. So they ask Jesus, have a look at verse 67. They ask him, if you are the Messiah, tell us. And of course, they ask the question because they want him in trouble. They want evidence to accuse him of. They want to prove he's a troublemaker, a threat to the Romans. They want a confession from his own lips. Now, he knows what their hearts are like. Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows that actually debate's not on the agenda at all. There's no room for discussion here. There's no room for debate. There's no room for argument. They've already reached their verdict. They've come to the conclusion before they examine the evidence. They're dismissive. They're closed-minded. So he knows actually it's futile to enter into dialogue. So he says, verse 67, if I tell you, you'll not believe me. If I asked you, you would not answer. It's possible, of course, to approach Christianity today with the same kind of closed-minded scepticism. Well, these things never happened because they couldn't happen that way. I don't need to look at the evidence because I've already come to my conclusion. That's what's going on here. Well, Jesus goes on and he gives them much more than they bargained for. He tells them who he is and he tells them where he's going. He makes an extraordinary claim. Look at verse 69. Jesus says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus refers to himself. He is the Son of Man. That's his most favoured way of describing himself. It refers to Daniel chapter 7, where there is a human figure who is given all authority from the Ancient of Days. That's God the Father. He's given universal and eternal rule and is worshipped as one equal with God. And Jesus says, that's me. I am the Son of Man. And I will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus will be in God's presence. He will rule in God's place. So in the heavenly courtroom, can you see that it is Jesus who is on the throne? When will this happen? From now on. That is, Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to rise again. He knows he's going to ascend to heaven. He knows he will sit on the throne. The resurrection will be like his coronation. He will be the king. And so despite appearances, actually it is Jesus who is the judge. So can you see the irony here? He stands before them in court. He's the accused. They're judging him. But really, he is the one who will judge them. He's God's heavenly judge. He's the son of man. I've already said that we have a strong sense of the importance of justice. Of course, if there is no God, it's hard to explain that. If all we are is the product of the impersonal and time and chance, then it's hard to explain why we feel such a sense of justice. After all, there is no judge. Well, the Bible teaches, no, the reason we feel such a strong sense of justice is because there is a God of justice. And the rule by which we will be judged in the end is how we treat God and particularly how we treat his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the world we live in is God's, and it matters how we treat God. And the way we respond to things can often reveal much about us. So um, if I listen to a beautiful piece of music, 
And I say, well, that's rubbish. It probably tells you more about me than it does the music. It tells you don't know anything about music. And what we see here is the way we respond to Jesus reveals a much deeper attitude. It reveals how we respond to God. Because in the end, how we respond to Jesus will either condemn us or acquit us. Jesus himself says elsewhere, whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. And he says, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I have come from God. So although Jesus is on trial, it's really they who are on trial. It's humanity that is on trial. It's we who are on trial. Well, the religious leaders don't get this at all. They miss the point. All they can hear is blasphemy. And so they want confirmation. Look at verse 70. They say, well, are you then the son of God? And Jesus concurs, you say that I am. Now, that's not him denying it. That's just a deflective way of him confirming their question. He is the Christ, God's anointed king. He is the son of man, the human and divine ruler, and he is the son of God. He is equal with God in his very being. They understand that he's saying this, and this is just too much for them. It's too radical to believe, too dangerous to dismiss. It's blasphemy, claiming equality with God. And so they want him dead. They say, verse 71, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. This is the moment. They've got him. They have all that they need. They're ready to convict. But they can't do it themselves. Jews do not have the right to execute anyone. But the Romans do. So they take Jesus to Pilate. Pilate's the Roman governor. He was in Jerusalem for the Passover festival. We know that he was a brutal man. He was described later by one historian as inflexible, merciless, and obstinate. Well, notice before Pilate, they change the nature of the charges. They don't accuse Jesus of blasphemy, because Pilate's a Roman. He doesn't believe in the God who can be blasphemed. He doesn't care for the Jewish law. So they change the nature of the charges from being religious to political. They say, verse 2, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payments of uh, taxes to Caesar and claims to be a Messiah, a king. They're saying he's a troublemaker, an insurrectionist, someone who fights against authority. He's dangerous. He's a threat to the peace. Of course, we know this is nonsense. Jesus resisted those who tried to make him king by force. He taught publicly the Jews were to pay taxes to Caesar. When, as for being the Messiah, he just stopped Peter from using the sword. Well, Pilate knows this, and he picks up just on the third accusation. He says, well, are you the king of the Jews? Again, Jesus affirms that he is. Well, Pilate can sense something is not right here, that Jesus is not dangerous. And so he says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. This here is Pilate's first declaration of Jesus' innocence. He's done nothing wrong, and Pilate knows it. Well, the Sanhedrin are not satisfied. So they push things on. They say, verse 5, well, he stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. Now, Pilate realizes he is in a tricky situation here. But he hears the word Galilee and he sees an escape route. Because he knows that Herod is in Jerusalem too. He can pass Jesus on to Herod. So that's what he does. Herod is Herod Antipas. He's one of the sons of Herod the Great. And he's delighted when he hears Jesus coming to him. He thinks, great, a miracle worker, a showman. The circus has come to town. We have a clown. But despite plying Jesus with questions, Jesus refuses to act or to answer. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, they, they sense an opportunity. They again continue to accuse Jesus. But Jesus says nothing. He entrusts himself to God, not to humanity. 
And so because Herod can't really get anywhere with Jesus, he decides to taunt him. He puts him in a robe. They mock him as a fake king. They dress him up. They parade him. And again, notice the irony. The judge of all mankind is being mocked as an imposter. Well, there's not much else to do, so Herod sends him back. And notice the most significant aspect of this meeting is found in verse 15. Because the Jewish leaders return with Pilate, to Pilate, sorry, with Jesus. And Pilate affirms for the second time that Jesus is innocent. He says, verse 14, you brought me this man as one who is inciting people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. So Luke is showing us that both Pilate and Herod find Jesus innocent. Herod mocks him, but he can't condemn him. He's done nothing wrong. He's not a troublemaker. He's not an insurrectionist. He's not a revolutionary. So Pilate decides, verse 16, I will punish him and then release him. And Luke wants us today to have no doubt. He wants us to see the innocence of Jesus. And what we see in this trial is really a judgment on the whole of Jesus' life, not just the trial. He is innocent of any wrongdoing. The Jews have done all they can to incriminate him, to find him guilty. They've searched for dirt, high and low, far and wide, anything that can be corrupted or twisted or reinterpreted. They've been in touch with the news of the world, the sun, the mirror. They've tapped his phone, checked the email, sifted through social media. But after everything, this trial is all that they come up with. And Pilate can see straight through it. We see here the innocence of Jesus. Well, just imagine, for whatever reason, you wanted to discredit me. You wanted to find something I've said that you could twist and reinterpret and use against me. I don't think it would be that hard. You could talk to my family, my friends, colleagues. You could research my history. I think you could find something foolish that I've said once, maybe, (laughs) and use it against me. And I'm sure that's probably the case with all of us. But notice how different Jesus is. He once asked a crowd, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? No answer. That is amazing, isn't it? He's saying, have I ever done anything wrong? No answer. Because they knew the innocence of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the only human being who has never done anything wrong. He loved God with his heart, mind, soul and strength. He loved his neighbour as himself. With Jesus there was no guilt, no shame, no remorse, no regret. He was truly innocent. We see the innocence of Jesus. And why does that really matter? Why is Luke so keen for us to see that this morning? Well, because he wants us to see that Jesus is not going to the cross because he deserves it. He's not going to the cross for his own sins. He's going for us. And if he's able to go to the cross in the place of sinners, if he's able to be qualified, he needs to be without sin himself. His needs to be a life of perfect obedience. Otherwise he cannot help us. And so Luke stresses the innocence of Jesus. And so in the history of humanity, it is Jesus' life that stands out for this very reason, like a candle in a dark vault, a star in the night sky. The breaking of the dawn is Jesus' life in the history of humanity. That's one of the reasons, I think, to take Christianity seriously. Because Jesus' teaching is backed up by his life, by the perfection of Jesus. 
An idea is, of course, only valid if it works. And Jesus shows us. He lives out his teaching, and his life was one of freedom and beauty and love. John Jack Russo, the famous philosopher, taught that as humans we are basically good, just corrupted by society. He taught this, but at the same time he notably abandoned many of his own children. It's hard to take him seriously. But there's no such fault that could be found with Jesus. He stands alone in history. We see the innocence of Jesus. I notice too here that despite his innocence, he suffers. In the wisdom of God, the innocent one suffers. And that's important, isn't it? Because if anyone has reason to complain of innocent suffering, it is Jesus. But he didn't complain, he didn't force his right, he didn't need to justify himself. No, he entrusted himself to God. Peter picks up on this later. He says in chapter 2 of his letter, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they heard their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. There is, of course, great suffering in this world. There is great opposition to Christians. But though we might suffer innocently, none of us are innocent sufferers because we're not innocent. The reality is we are all recipients and causes of suffering. But not Jesus. And he's a model for us. Christians, we are called to be those who do not complain, who do not retaliate, who do not seek revenge. Because if anyone could, it was Jesus. And he didn't. Perhaps you're especially conscious this morning of your own suffering. And there is a real temptation there to complain or to be bitter, to think you've been treated unfairly by God. But be encouraged and challenged by the example of Jesus, the truly innocent one. We see here the innocence of Jesus. And his innocence is further highlighted by its profound contrast to the rest of humanity. See, Jesus' trial should have ended there. But it didn't because like vampires, the religious leaders are thirsty for blood. Jesus' blood. Argument has not worked. Debate, reason, investigation has got nowhere. So they think on their feet. It was Jewish custom to release a prisoner at Passover. So they call for a release, but not Jesus. They stir up the crowd. They shout, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. They resort to their final tactic. Intimidation, numbers, crowd hysteria, force, volume, threat. They shout. Now Pilate isn't eager to condemn an innocent man, so he appeals to reason. But they just keep on shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Like a pack of wolves licking their lips as they close in on the stag, they have eyes for one thing only, and that is death. Now for the third time, Pilate insists on Jesus' innocence. Verse 22, why? Well, what crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I'll have him punished and release him. But his argument is fruitless, and he probably knows it because reason is dead. This deep-rooted hatred towards Jesus is not a matter of intellect and calm consideration. It goes much deeper. It goes into the depths, the recesses of the human heart. Because we see here a sobering picture. It's a picture of humanity. Because that's the second thing I want us to see, and that's the sinfulness of humanity. We have an insight into our hearts, and friends, this is not comfortable. 
You see, who are we in the story? Are we the perfect, spotless, blameless, innocent one? Or are we more like those who condemn him? We get a sense here of the whole of humanity against Jesus. There's the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, the crowd. So there's Jew and there's Gentile. There's the establishment, there's the common people, there's everyone. It's the whole world against Jesus. It's humanity. It's us. Because this irrational, unquenchable, determined resistance to Jesus, the Bible says, is at the very heart of our nature. Humanity has been dragged down. We've been born like this. We have a natural resistance to God. It is our greatest problem. See, the Bible holds up a mirror to our hearts. It puts us under the microscope. It shows us what we're like, and it's not pretty. It's what the Bible calls sin. It is our rebellion against God and our moral failure before him. See, we are not just naturally good people who need to go to an occasional evening class in morality. Actually, we're more like a rotten apple that is corrupted to the core. Now, no way are we as bad as we could be, but every part of us is tainted by our sin. And this truth is seen no more clearly than when humanity turned its back on God the Son. As the hymn goes, my conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sin, his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Forever etched upon my mind is the look of him who died, the lamb I crucified. We see here the sinfulness of humanity. You might think, well, Pete, this is just far too pessimistic. You might think that's just not the case, but just not that bad. Is it really an accurate picture of humanity? But I want to suggest to you that the problem with thinking that is that I think you'll be constantly surprised. Constantly surprised by yourself and constantly surprised by other people. Because if we are basically good people, why is it that we keep on doing things we're ashamed of? Why do we find it so hard to love people, to love the people we love? Why do we find it so hard to forgive people, to stay friends with people? See, why is it that despite phenomenal scientific and technological progress, the world is still a place of bloodshed and rape and abuse and family breakdown and injustice and, in war- and warfare? See, the Bible is not sentimental. It tells us what no one else is willing to tell us. And that is the truth. It's uncomfortable. It's sobering. But we see here a, a picture, the sinfulness of humanity. And yet, Luke writes with hope, because this darkness is the darkness upon which the precious light of the gospel shines. You see, it's only when we realise that we are lost that we'll look to be found. It's not until we acknowledge the state of our hearts that actually Jesus becomes good news, Christianity becomes good news, wonderful news, precious news. So I urge you to see yourself in the story, to see that actually... I'm much more like the Jews than I am like Jesus here. We are called to confess that we are lost. But we can do it with joy, not to beat ourselves up. Because gloriously the story doesn't end there. There is light at the end of the tunnel because we see this innocence of Jesus, the sinfulness of humanity, but the final truth we see is the mercy of God. Because despite Pilate's protest, shouting wins the day. Verse 22, but with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Pilate finally gives in. He's a coward. 
In the end, he's more interested in keeping peace than he is in maintaining justice and upholding what is right. So he releases a guilty man and condemns an innocent one to die. He gives in to the will of the crowd. And so because Jesus dies, Barabbas goes free. Barabbas, who was truly guilty of the things Jesus died for, insurrection, murder, troublemaking, goes free. And so what we have here is a simple and yet profound parable, story, picture of the achievement of the cross. Because what happens here in the wisdom and sovereign plan of God, in the innocent suffering of Jesus, is not a tragic accident, but the very means of salvation. Because Luke tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. And the way he saves the lost is by giving up his life. He sees his death in terms of the Passover lamb, the one who was slain in the place of the firstborn son. He sees his death in terms of Isaiah's suffering servant, the one who bears the sin of many. He sees his death as an experience of the wrath of God. Remember, he's, in Gethsemane, he cries because he's going to drink the cup, the cup of God's wrath. He's going to face it himself, and he's doing this for us. He's dying for his people. He, the innocent one, dies so that we, the guilty ones, may go free. I mean, just imagine what it was like for Barabbas. He was rightly condemned, guilty, on death row. The time had come. But that day, Jesus was condemned. And he was set free. His chains fell off. His sentence was wiped out. He was no longer condemned. He did not have to pay the penalty. He went free. And friends, is that not a wonderful picture of the gospel? Is that not a, not a wonderful picture of what we can say as Christians? What Jesus has done for us? Because Jesus says, whoever believes in him has passed over from death to life. The Christian can say, along with Barabbas, because Jesus died, I am set free. Because God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Because through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. This passage teaches us about the mercy of God. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Because just think the kind of people who Jesus died for. See, the kind of people who can benefit from Jesus' death are the kind of people who put him there in the first place. It was our sin that put him there. And yet he went for sinners like us, so that we could be like Barabbas, so that God could declare us innocent, righteous, blameless, because the sentence has already passed, because the punishment's been paid. We see here wonderfully the mercy of God. And if you're not a Christian, please see that this is what is being offered to you. Jesus calls you to believe in him, to trust in him, to receive his forgiveness, to have your sins paid for, to go free, to go from being guilty to innocent, to know the love and favour and approval and acquittal of God. See, what a wonderful reminder for us this morning if we're Christians, because ultimately God does not treat us according to our own performance. 
We're not treated as we deserve. We never are. John Newton, the famous slave trader turned pastor and writer of the great hymn Amazing Grace, said on his deathbed, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, Christ a great saviour. As the words of another hymn go, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. We see the mercy of God. So this passage is about a miscarriage of justice. We see, even in the depths of innocent suffering, God has a wise and good and merciful plan. And that's encouraging. Because it means that we may not understand what we are going through. We may feel very strongly that things are not going well. Where is God in our experience? But if he can work through the innocent suffering of Jesus, he can be at work in our lives too. Let us remember God's goodness this morning. His mercy, his undeserved kindness seen here at the cross because he never treats us as we deserve. Always better.